This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast, and this afternoon, we're fortunate to have David Allard. He's the chief geologist and author of A World of Culture, Oil, and Golf. And for the folks that can see the video, this is the book. Really cool. And I went through the book this morning and yesterday. I would encourage you guys to go through. I think there's no place on the planet this guy hasn't either landed on, been in, or been over. So, highly traveled. Thanks so much for taking time. Thank you, Bob. Pleasure to be here. Super. Well, I tell you what, let's start with basically the story that got you into the oil and gas business. Well, that's fun because growing up, I knew I was going to be an earth scientist from junior high doing the sand experiments with little rivers. And I grew up and I went to college. And the first orientation day, I was going to be a forestry major. That's right. And I met some professors and they said, that'd be a good thing if you got a PhD, but then you probably wouldn't get a job. Why don't you be a geologist? And I changed right there and I've been a geologist ever since. Where'd you go to school? Edinburgh University of Pennsylvania. Geologist, Pennsylvania. You know, in the oil field, you know, you usually hear Colorado School of Mines, you know, South Dakota or the Dakotas and elsewhere. Pennsylvania wouldn't mm-hmm. have come to mind, but the Marcellus kind of brought that in. More recent years, back in 1980, when I graduated, it was, as you probably know, one of the largest booms ever in the oil and gas business, and they needed geologists, and my professor said, you can work anywhere. So I went to California, and I ended up with Sohio initially in San Francisco. So I was lucky enough to get a job with only a BS degree. I call myself a boom baby, if you will. You graduated in 80. Well, the oil field got kind of puny not long after that. Right. I proudly or maybe not so proudly say I've survived five major downturns. And the first one you're speaking of, about 1985-86, there was some disruption in the force of OPEC and Saudi's commitment of the oil reserve, and it just changed the world demand, and boom, we had our first downturn. So we went from thinking we were going to have $100 oil forever, and a lot of business leaders bet the farm on that kind of future income, and many of them went by the wayside in the 80s because of it. And so you... Went to San Francisco. So were you married at the time or when did you meet your bride? No, I met my bride in Midland, Texas in in the mid-80s. For those that don't know, we're being supervised today. (laughs) (laughs) Deborah is here. Deborah is here, which is cool. And so, you know, in, in thinking about folks have different thoughts about what does a geologist actually do in the oil field? Our job as geologists, the bottom line is we say, here's where you drill to find more oil and gas production or reserves, whatever the objective of your company model is. And so you point the drilling rig. Essentially. And we do that with a series of tools. And of course, ultimately, we map the subsurface and try to identify structures or traps for the oil and gas. And that technology has evolved quite a bit in recent years. A real improvement in success rate came from 3D seismic. You know, so Followed along with the computer capability. I can remember that when there was a few companies that just started out in that 3D graphic world way back when. We wanted to shift gears a little bit. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about the book. I think most people have no idea about how much travel and the exploration around the globe that comes with being a geologist in the oil field. Right. And going through the book, I mean, talking about a rolling stone that gathered no moss. Hmm. For you, how many countries did you say you'd been through? 
The book covers 20 plus countries over a 20 plus year period. I've personally visited 40 or more countries, but I focus on the business aspect of experiences in the book. And my very first move with a major oil company, I did several years in the U.S. base with a variety of jobs, production, exploration. And I joined the international group. And within a couple of weeks, I found myself in Turkey and riding up the mountains with a guy that spoke very little English, but he had one cassette tape. He says, you like music? And he played Michael Jackson for five hours. (laughs) So I got to the rig and the geologist I was relieving said, that'd be a great thing for your journal. And it hit me from that point forward for the next 20 plus years, I kept a journal. So I distilled that down to a readable novel format that is the book now. I just feel like it's a message to share my business experiences. And a lot of the book talks about cultural experiences and reviews have picked up on that very in tune with the local culture. And it's key to success for the business to engage the host country and follow the rules and create value for everyone involved. I think about now when you hear Michael Jackson come onto the radio, does it take (laughs) you back to your ride in Turkey? (laughs) Yeah, on occasion it does. (laughs) I think about, as you're here domestically, and then you get the the word that you're going to Turkey or you're going to China. When you get that type of um, heads up, what's your thought process when you're going to a country? Read up on how it works. Uh, As a geologist, the first thing we do is we make maps and say drill here, but we have to understand the history of the geologic basin. We talk about how the rock, sand, shale, or whatever the target is, what are the risks of the oil business, and we work that together with the engineer. So we do a lot of homework on the subsurface, if you will. The surface is a whole other world. There's a surface risk, political, military, terrorism, things like that that you have to consider. So I was lucky enough to work for larger companies that had the resource to research the security risk, above ground risk political and fiscal risk well in advance. So by the time we got there to drill wells, there'd been a lot of homework, there'd been a deal made and negotiated contract and that kind of thing. So there's many aspects of it. Well, we were talking that you're a runner and you're a golfer. And I think (laughs) about trying to stay in the running game when you're out in some of these remote sites (laughs) and yet you still ran. I took a few jogs around the perimeter of our jungle abodes in Guatemala. I didn't leave the perimeter central chad in africa my very first trip to turkey i took off into the mountains but that was my first trip i didn't really understand the security as well as i do now (laughs) (laughs) it's interesting for you you go to these foreign locations and people don't have an idea i don't think of the duration of your time on the ground in those days so talk a little bit about how long you were on ground and why that was done that way I don't know where to start that. So typically, an international venture starts with the company deciding to enter that country, and they've portrayed the chance for success, the geology, the potential reserves, whatever fiscal terms and political risk or whatever. You enter the country, and you may win a license, and that license may be a a bid round sale with the government where you obligate to drill a couple of wells, shoot some seismic, hire some local labor whatever, some kind of engagement locally. But you may get a license and not drill the well for, say, a year or two as you digest the data and you make an exploration discovery, especially if it's remote, away from facilities. 
it may be years of going back and drilling appraisal wells and then finally deciding to make that jump to a development, which is an incredible amount of money to move into an oil and gas business. So the amount of years and investment and risk taken on by these companies long before they ever see the profit is uh, part of the reason I wrote the book, to try to just tell some stories. And I was in different stages of development for different countries and different places. And I think for the folks up and down the front range of Colorado, I think we've seen seismic crews doing their work in the big wheeled vehicles out certainly thumping around on the ground. But in the jungles in Guatemala and Chad and other places, how far behind is, once you get the contract, is seismic the next step? And then once seismic shot, is there a general time frame between when they shoot seismic to when you elect to drill? Yeah, typically uh, it may take months or a year to acquire the seismic data. It depends how large of a footprint and what kind of seismic. If you're remote working through a jungle that uh, does not have roads, then that just add months and months. So typically it may be a year cycle to permit, acquire, process, and interpret the seismic before you ever have data that goes into the geology. And so it may be a year or more just to get to the point where, okay, the maps are becoming clear. And then you present that to your leadership of the company, the decision makers, and they may go, all right, next year we're going to drill. There may be cycles of windows of opportunity to drill. For example, in Alaska, you can only drill in the winter because it's North Slope and onshore North Slope. There's some plays working there now, but you can only drill in the winter because you want the ground frozen so you don't damage the permafrost tundra layer, for example. Anyway. So you were on the receiving end of those budgetary decisions early in your career. And later in your career, you were involved more about the decisions on budget and where to send and what to do. That's correct. Early in my career, I was the guy that went out to the well site and made sure that we were capturing the rock samples and running logs to collect data and understand if we have a discovery well or not. And then later on, I moved into management and GM, and my final position was a chief geologist. So you see the budget, you see the strategy, and you're working together as a leadership team to decide, okay, do we want to take some more risk and go further in this country, or do we want to stay in the U.S.? You've seen a tremendous swing with the onset of uh, horizontal drilling. Horizontal drilling and fracking is a labor-intensive, investment-intensive but a lower risk. Once you've established a play that's horizontally drilled, oil company leadership likes that because it's repeatable generally. There's more geology variation than people portrayed, and we're learning that. But so that kind of changed the focus of a lot of companies. So when I was in the international exploration game in the 90s, early 2000s, that was a very popular target for companies for growth that were of decent size because there was marginally to very little exploration in some prolific areas. Yeah, more manufacturing than... Right. Yeah. Thinking about, you mentioned earlier, you were on the rig, and you were working on the rig, and you were looking at samples. I don't think people understand very well that aren't in the industry where those samples come from and how you get your hands on them. Okay, as the uh, drilling bit is going down through the earth, drilling through hard rock, into a basin that's mature enough, deep enough, hot enough to generate oil and gas, you drill through a lot of layers and uh, these rotary bits churn up tiny little samples that are about as big as your pinky fingernail or smaller. And so you're looking under a microscope at these little chips of rock 
and you might have a trace of oil. And you're also monitoring these uh, rotary rig systems have a, a contained fluid system. There's fluids where the drill bit's spinning, and those fluids lift those cuttings up around the drilling tube, essentially, and it's spit out at the surface. People collect the samples, bring them in, the mudloggers look at those, and we get that data. At the same time, that fluid system has gas monitors all over it for safety reasons, as well as we look at that gas variation, specifically what hydrocarbon content's in it, and we see gas increases typically associated with productive oil and gas zones. So those are the hardcore elements, the rock sample, oil and gas samples, and the gas while drilling, and the rate of penetration of the bit. The bit hits some space in the rock, it might drill faster. We call that a drilling break. So after that, then you'll run wireline logs and those interpretations of density, resistivity, porosity, and what saturation you think is in the rock, whether it's water, gas, or oil, those are all key elements. That's what the geologists bring. Then you marry that with the geophysical interpretation of seismic data. The focus of geologists is the rock outcrops or where there's well data with what we call hard data, rock data, oil and gas shows. And the geophysics and the seismic strings that together to get a view of the whole basin if you spent the money to shoot seismic over the whole basin or a large area. Then you start seeing an image of the subsurface and we calibrate it with the rock data from the wells and then go on to make our maps of the joint effort. And then we show the engineers, okay, we have these traps, they're this big, we think there's this much oil and gas in place. And the engineers typically take that and figure out the recovery system mechanism and the economics of the total project, not just of drilling a well, but if you drill an exploration well, make a discovery and find this volume, is that going to be attractive economically? I wanted to go through the detail because I think there's a lot of confusion. People don't really, they see a rig out there, they see a bunch of trucks around it. And I don't think they have any idea necessarily what goes on. And, you know, how hard the work is. And in some of the places when you're in a foreign country, I mean, it's a multinational crew. Exactly. And living conditions can be interesting. Mm -hmm. And so, and going from that, when you got the, the urging of one of your friends to write that down in your journal. So you were thinking about writing this book, A World of Culture, Oil and Golf, 20 plus years ago. That's correct. And so... When did you start writing this book? Actually, I kept a journal for a number of years just because I thought it was a good idea. And as that volume started to grow, I thought, this might be the content for a great book. And as I traveled, lucky enough to travel a lot of business class, I sat next to so many very high-powered executive types in various industries, and we'd end up talking about the concept. What? Fiction? Nonfiction? What should I focus on? So... I had a lot of years of evolving, but I finally decided to stop keeping a journal and start writing the book in 2010. I was working with a team and we were flying to Trinidad. We were going down there to look at a license round offered by the government, leases for sale. And we were evaluating those and whether the company was going to bid and decide to enter Trinidad or not. And we we're flying over the Gulf of Mexico and I looked down and I said, That's Macondo. If you don't know, years ago in about 2010, there was a well drilled and it blew out in the Gulf of Mexico called Macondo. BP was the operator that's well known publicly and spilled a lot of oil. And it was disastrous for the entire industry because the government reacted harshly and 
constrained offshore drilling for a long time. A lot of people lost jobs while they figured out how to improve safety procedures and containment, which ended up being a good thing. There was a lot of involvement that way. But so there I was flying 35,000 feet. I looked down and you could see the rig and the drill ships around it. They were trying to drill relief wells to stop the flow of oil, which was still spilling into the Gulf of Mexico. And you could see the sheen of oil over the surface. And I just thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to stop right now and write my book. And so that was about 2010. And the book was published November 2016. I met a publisher and we found somebody to help me type up all the content. And I eventually got a professional writer as a co-author to change it from details of journal that nobody would care about into a flowing book that Mm -hmm. people would enjoy reading, hopefully. And so far they have. I think about the journey from uh, all the travels. And I'm thinking about as you're sitting out in the jungle of Guatemala, logging thoughts into your journal. I've got to imagine that your journals are rather interesting looking after all the trips and travels and locales. (laughs) So you still have all your journals? We still have the original journals in a a box somewhere, for sure. And inside what folks don't know that haven't looked in the book is the photos in there that you took along the way. And there's some where you're standing in some places that look really sketchy. (laughs) Indeed. Guatemala is a good one you brought up. We flew to Guatemala City and we flew in our own plane north towards where the Tikal Mayan ruins that people may know about, but it's triple canopy jungle. And we were making an exploration play for carbonate reservoirs, small structures over the northern parts of onshore Guatemala. But that meant we flew in the small plane about an hour, landed on a dirt strip, went down in trucks to a river, rode these long boats another half hour upriver got out in another truck, drove into this location with a road that we carved into the jungle, the company did. So we were totally remote. At that time, the leftist rebels were still fighting the government. And so we had a a carved perimeter, barbed wire, security guards and everything. And the rebels actually visited our location. And they're heroes to the local people because they're fighting for their cause. But that turned south and the rebels took over the location while we were there and the regular army marched in 500 army and they were patrolling the jungle after the regular army were there just like vietnam style there i became friends with the army guys and they said okay while you're sleeping tonight we're gonna send this patrol out into the jungle looking for the rebels and i just thought geez what am i doing here (laughs) so i was thinking as you were talking about planes trains and automobiles and a canoe and then how'd they get the equipment into the site well, they, that's, uh, you know, the facilitators, the engineers, the planners, that's a whole other part of the business. Did They're, they freight it up the river on a barge? I imagine they did, yeah. I mean, you know, I think about... The rig and parts yeah. from the major ports, and they just used trucks, large trucks and helicopters, whatever it took. And so I was in so many settings that I get to the rig, by the time the geologist gets there, there's a series of trailers, there's a water supply, there's a a commissary, a kitchen. I mean, it's a a little city run on generation because you may be so remote, you're away from power source. And so it's just fascinating what the engineers can do to set those things up. And as you look back over your career and you've got you with vast experience, right? what advice would you offer to you, the geologist that was brand new or anybody that's thinking about getting in the geology field, knowing what you know now? 
first of all, the industry is cyclical. So be prepared for some up and down times. The five downturns I experienced, uh, you have to have a stern stomach to understand that the company may be looking at reducing budgets by 50-80% during the downtimes, cutting costs, and that means letting people go. So your job is to understand the business the best you can and learn how to create value. The other thing is, as a geologist, I just tried to learn everything I could about every aspect of the business. But as a geologist, you want to build some technical skills. Specifically, I learned petrophysics, fault seal, and some other things early on that moved me into the leadership roles that I had later. And of course, the leadership roles of geoscience manager and those jobs, like any leadership role, there's the people skills that are common to all businesses. I just say as a geologist going into the business, be prepared to adapt to change. When you're working internationally, understand the host country, the culture, because invariably part of the team, there were local people. And I really enjoyed all the opportunities to learn the different cultures and the different teammates I had around the world. Well, that's a big part of it. So especially third world countries, people say, ah, oh, oil and gas, such a dirty business. But the way I look at it is we work with the government. And if we agree to do a deal and go in there and work together and try to establish some additional oil and gas reserve, that ends up being successful. That creates jobs. It creates an income. It creates increased investment into that country. So until we figure out a complete alternative to oil and gas, as far as energy and generation of product, then we're stuck with it. So <laughs> I was thinking as you were talking that early in the career, you traveled unaccompanied. And right. so basically you packed up and you left with your gear and you came back with your gear. Compare and contrast that when you started traveling with your family. Because what was the first trip? Was it to China that you went with your family? Or no, Egypt. Uh, Egypt, was, it Egypt. Was. Yeah, thanks for that. Right. Uh, so early on, I did a lot of international work on the well site, as you could tell by my comments. And then as I moved into the general teamwork and business work, it was uh, business trips. <laughs> Those don't necessarily pay bonus and you're gone anyway. So a lot of business trips, it was very exciting. And I'd come home and tell stories and bring little trinkets and stuff. But one of my goals was, okay, if I'm going to continue in the international arena, of which I've built skills and credibility for, I'd like the opportunity to just move as a family. So that precipitated my leaving a major company and going to a large independent that needed people like me to develop uh, activity in Egypt. So I was earmarked to move with a family to Egypt, and we did that. And we lived as a family in Egypt for five years, and it was a fantastic trip. But the point was, we were together doing it. I wasn't gone all the time, and I didn't miss my kids. Uh, you know, play at school and that kind of thing. So, and I think about just in practical terms, I'm former military and many military families move. And so you pack up all your gear and you go to someplace where culture's different, utilities are different, sockets are different. Right. And so, and your son was how old when you guys went to Egypt? He was in kindergarten. Was there for you, you've got, you know, the mechanical side, you know, education, a grocery store, security. I don't know if you had security in those days or not. So what was that like just to, to get your family into Egypt? What was the challenge or thought process? Well, my wife and I are outgoing and uh, we understood the detail of it going in. The company had established themselves in there a couple of years prior and had people that used to work for Amico who had been in Egypt for many years. So we had a lot of lessons learned about having support for housing repair 
having support for visas, having support for uh, to buy furniture in Egypt or have furniture made and things like that. So while I was busy freaking out about learning a whole new basin and trying to explore successfully in Egypt, my wife was busy dealing with how to get our home working and making sure my son got to school and going to the Cairo American School, International School. So it's a, a whole ball of wax. And I was lucky enough to have decent briefings from supported by my company and they give you a little education on working with different cultures and things like that. So it was definitely an adjustment and not all families are successful. Some just never adapt and go home after a year or two. We enjoyed it. We were there five years. How much of that do you think is attitude? Attitude certainly helps. But what I'm trying to say is if I'm at work and everybody speaks English and there's everything's taken care of and it's just business as usual, but if the wife's not successfully integrated into the expat community or the school or the child's not doing well in school or gets into trouble, if the family's not all working successfully, then the partnership does not work to be an effective employee for the company. And that's why companies that are successful in these third world or international ventures understand that. And they put a lot of uh, effort with the HR side to accommodate people and brief them and know what to expect. I think about... I have relatives that were in the expat community in various countries. What do you think about the, the drawbacks and the positives of having your son in the international expat community? Uh, for us, it was extremely positive. Generally, the peoples that you meet in international expat communities are outgoing and are successful. And in Egypt, for example, it wasn't just oil and gas. It was military people. There were teachers. There was Coca-Cola, Ford, U.S. Embassy people. So you're around a lot of positive influence in the schools, the teachers at these international schools, those are coveted jobs. They get better money and a great experience. So the teachers are top notch. So it was positive for us all the way around. Do you think that that influence is going to change how your son views where he works and how he conducts himself as an adult? Yes, he has a global view that most kids in the United States don't have. Things have changed now. The the global commerce that we have and the travel, it seems to be not so exotic. So some of the things I traveled early on, people say, oh, I've been there now. But it's certainly his eight years overseas certainly shaped him as a person. I've seen a lot of my coworkers' children go on to become work in international, learn languages, international business, that kind of thing. So he certainly has a global view that we think is useful because we are a global economy. I did notice that that some of your snow skiing adventures were in, it certainly wasn't Vail and Copper. <laughs> That's right. When we were in Egypt, we luckily got three trips a year. So every year we took a week skiing in Europe, France, Italy, et cetera. So we we're lucky enough to see that. And nowadays, you know, there's such a political upheaval and challenge in parts of the Middle East. How much of that did you see early on in your career over there? Well, in my days in Egypt, Egypt was very stable. The U.S. invested a lot of money there for support and U.S. aid. And Egypt is North Africa. It's not the center of the Middle East per se. But we learned a lot about the Muslim culture being in Egypt for five years. But I never worked in Saudi Arabia, for example, Iraq, Iran. I know people that did. That's a different level of risk than northern Egypt. Of course, now sadly, we've seen Arab Spring come in and cause a lot of uh, disruption even Egypt and the whole arena of that part of the world. 
I'm genuinely interested in both the industry, the travel, and the things that you brought to the table. Certainly. And was fortunate enough to be able to go through the book before we got together. And so that really helps paint a picture in, for you folks that haven't picked up the book, you know, the a World of Culture and Oil and Golf, I really suggest that you do. It's a perspective that's on the ground. Here's what I did. This is where I went. This was a weekend. Play golf in the mud, trying to keep my get down to scratch golf. <laughs> Don't know if that happened. Not but, quite. <laughs> but you know, you think about the day to day travails and successes and and issues. The book covers that. So if you're thinking about working internationally or thinking about traveling internationally, this is a really nice resource to take a look and see what kind of things happen. And so I'm going to shift gears just a little bit. And this is the part where I ask you a whole series of questions. And we periodically go off the rail, which is fine. And I look at some other things. So for you, in a perfect world for the book, who would you like this book to impact or serve? As I've evolved and understand the people that are interested in this 20 plus years, 20 plus countries, the different business situations I experience, and of course, the cultures, and yes, as you point out, occasionally golf, oil and gas industry people have given me positive remarks. That'd be a a group of military people, frequent international travelers. I think all could benefit from reading this book, and most people read it, and it's kind of a you were there experience. I, I was in Russia when they were raising the double eagle after communism fell. I was in Hong Kong before it turned back to China. Obviously, as you mentioned, I was in Turkey before that part of it became Kurdistan. So I just have you were there moments that I feel like sharing, and I hope people are interested to see. But those are the arenas of business that I think would most definitely enjoy reading the book. Well, you know, the, the history of this time frame, it was since 1980 to now, I guess it's like many others, lots right. of turning points, lots of upheaval, and much change in some of the areas that you guys were doing exploration. And in Kyrgyzstan, some of the drilling techniques that they used then versus now, you were in Moscow and uh, less than perhaps, n- certainly not like now. So you saw a lot of changes. Absolutely. When, uh, so looking back over your career, we all have successes and failures. Was there a failure or a perceived failure that helped set you up for a future achievement? Well, instantly comes to mind our experiences in Egypt as a company. The business model there is a cost recovery mechanism where the government doesn't put upfront money. The company puts up the money and the government pays its share of the operation back in future production, cost recovery. What that means is the government uh, approves things for cost recovery. And what that means is you might have a large concession of operation where you're spending money. And if your money spending drops off, their share of production grows. Because we had a situation where the company made a large discovery, saw tens of different structures undrilled in that same concession. And if you keep spending money, that gives additional money and income of future production. So they said, oh my gosh, bring six rigs out. Let's drill all these structures. They drilled 22 dry holes in a row. And the numbers in the oil and gas business are kind of frightening. But even at that point, those were two, $3 million wells. And that was a lot of money for the company. It was like, oh my gosh, we're running this thing into the ground. What can we do differently? And I was on a, fortunate enough to be on a team of really good geologists, geophysicists. And we learned the source rock where the oil and gas comes from is not just across the whole area. It was in little sub-basins, and it was only churning 
for certain parts of time. And in some areas, the source rock generation was done and the oil was just sloshing around. The source was shut off. So you had a geologic history to better understand. And then we realized these structures we were drilling, we didn't see image very well. So we started shooting 3D seismic. And so following that change in business practice, it took more investment and more time to figure these things out. But following that, the company went on a 50% exploration well success rate, which for people in the oil and gas industry back in the 80s, it was one in 10 well found an economic volume. But as 3D seismic evolved, and in this case, 50% economic success rate, that's just not the geologist finding a bucket of oil saying, see, it worked. This is economic, make money for the company and the, and the team and the country. So that was a business practice, a change that I lived through personally. As sometimes you have to decide to spend more money to be successful and reduce risk. So that's what I call reducing the below ground risk. Get well, more you, data. You paid a lot of tuition for that. You, you did. <laughs> Indeed. If you could take and put an ad on page one of the local paper sharing the message of your book or advice, what would it say and why? I would say understand the host country or culture wherever you are. Engage with the people. Everyone has something to offer. Sometimes you have to work hard to understand what that positive contribution is. And as a uh, geologist, I say, get more data. So understand your host, understand the culture you're working in, and get more data. <laughs> in thinking about the opportunity to, to talk about your book, speak in front of audiences, and if somebody's listening and said, geez, we'd love you to have, have you come tell your story. We've talked a lot about where you've been and what you've done. I answer their question, what makes you an authority on, mm-hmm. on this topic? What would you say to them? Oil and gas business, 37 years experience, and I've been a part of numerous successful campaigns in all different kinds of international or domestic exploration. Saw the onset of horizontal drilling. I've seen development operations turned around, exploration turned around. So talk about technical details of the geology reservoir economics, and also the business itself, looking at the planning cycle. I did a lot of that. What I typically do when I speak is I use a series of different countries that I worked in, and I tell, depending on the level of interest of the audience, I may talk about the culture and what we learned and some funny stories, or I may talk about the business case that we were in at the time. Was it a remote exploration deal, or was it development of a known field? to become economic, those kinds of things. For you, in looking back over time, obviously, if you're a writer, you're a reader. What's the most recent book or influential book that's altered your perception on leadership or your experiences? Well, I guess I've enjoyed reading The Prize from Daniel Juergen, Following Oil by Thomas Petrie. He's out of Denver right now, Petrie Parkman. Uh, Following Oil, he's a 40-plus year investment banker. He was a leader in Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. But he talks about the fiscal level of advising countries on oil and gas investment and the whole global economics of that's not necessarily my area of expertise. So I was fascinated reading that. And then as a child, I read Call of the Wild by Jack London. So that started the adventure grains in me. Been there, read it too. Great book. If you (laughs) haven't read it, you're missing something for sure. When you went into some of the foreign countries and you were charged with negotiating a deal to drill in that country, what are the key things that 
somebody could take to the table to help them succeed getting that done? Well, I was always partnered with a lawyer or a business development, somebody that negotiates full-time. I learned a lot about it and I was involved with it at times, but you really have to understand the fiscal contracts of the host country or state in the United States, and that's key. So in the United States, I mean, the rules are just published, but if you're going into a country and you're trying to negotiate rather than bid against numerous companies for a block of land, you want to go in and negotiate directly with the government. Essentially, you have to understand the rules of that host country, but you have to portray very clearly what's in it for the host country and what you're willing to spend financially. Are you going to create jobs for locals? Are you going to invest a little money and leave right away? Or are you in it for the long term? So those are kind of things you paint on the side while you're negotiating a contract. What's in it for them? Well, if these countries don't have the financial capability to run their own oil and gas company, they're looking for outside companies to come in and they need our investment and they need our expertise in many cases. So once we bring that, the North Sea is a fabulous example. In the early 60s, there was gas production in the Netherlands from the giant Groningen field, and they've discovered a little gas in the North Sea, but there was no large oil fields, and there was large licenses passed out. A lot of companies came in and drilled. There was about 200 wells drilled dry, and people were starting to think, this isn't going to work. And then they discovered the large oil fields, and it turned into a major oil and gas producing part of the world. And now the North Seas produce some 30 billion barrels. You have the UK side that's got numerous fields and then the Norway side. But that's been a phenomenal run. And initially, a lot of companies brought in all the expertise. But now when we lived in Scotland following our Egypt days, there were no more United States softball teams because most of the jobs were all handled by locals. There was very few expats in these companies because plenty of bright people in the UK that learned the geology roles, the drilling operations, development engineers, production. So that really completely changed the work environment there. So that's a transformation into a whole industry. I think uh, before the downturn of 2014, there was some 450,000 people employed in the UK in the oil and gas industry. So it's a phenomenal thing. That's quite a testament from basically starting at zero. Right. An amazing deal. For you, looking over your time of travel and outside the country, what's your most unusual habit or what other folks might have thought that was unusual that helped you be effective when you traveled? I guess I was so interested in learning the new places that I overlooked the inconveniences and the long travel time. I guess keeping uh, physically fit, and I've worked out all my life, and that really helped with jet lag and, and those kinds of things. And I had uh, good medical support from a lot of these companies. They made sure we had all our shots in the early days. I took malaria medicine and that kind of thing. But just being prepared. Early days, I was a Boy Scout, and I brought that with me to this international arena. Have your data, have your medicine, know where you're going, know who the people are that you need to know, know who has the authority, know what the rules are. Over the past few years, what belief or protocol have you established that's most impacted your behavior and success? I've tried to be a good communicator. 
So as I evolved later in, in my career in management roles, it was important to portray to the team, okay, here's our goals. Here's how we're going to get there. And these independent oil and gas companies, there may be bonus potential if we're able as a company to achieve our goals. So you get when you incentivize. If your company's looking to grow production, maybe you want to drill a whole lot of more wells. So that means your people permitting wells are going to double their workload. The land people who are negotiating access are going to hurry up and get the permits ready and approved. I mean, it's just a whole team environment that everybody has to work together to significantly grow your output or investment. I think about that. And we were chatting before. It says, you know, talking about world market and demand and supply for oil and gas and the oil and gas business cycle. And you touched on that just a little bit right there, whether you're increasing drilling or decreasing. You want to drive and dig into that a little bit? That's right. I know that during my career, there were five major downturns and uh, people are hearing even today in the news, OPEC has decided to cut production. When we had our downturn in 2014, oil dropped into the $30 range and most oil and gas United States operations are uneconomic at that point. Permian Basin, you can drill horizontal wells for $40 oil and make money and keep going. But most of the oil and gas ventures in the United States are uneconomic at that point. So you're kind of shutting down operations. And these OPEC members understand they need a certain level for price of oil too, because a lot of them fund their whole country operation that way. So it's a real dynamic thing now globally, the global demand for oil and gas. And you see OPEC controlling things by cutting production or increasing production to get more flow of cash. Phenomenal thing that's happened with the United States in the onset of horizontal drilling. That's United States figuring out how to extract economic volumes of oil and gas. Initially, it was horizontal drilling and fracking for gas reservoirs, and then it evolved to be oil reservoirs. And the technology of that is a whole world unto itself. It's labor-intensive, cost-intensive, but it reinvigorated many of the traditional basins of the United States, the Bakken and Dakotas, the DJ Basin in Colorado, uh, of course, the Permian Basin, the Haynesville in Louisiana, and of course, the realization that uh, the Marcellus is phenomenal gas volumes, huge trillions of gas volumes. And so the United States oil and gas production is larger now than it's been since the 50s. We've exceeded 10 million barrels a day and going towards 11 million barrels a day. And we haven't seen that level of production in the United States for many years. And the amount of imported oil and gas has dropped to below 5 million barrels a day, which uh, that's a great way to reduce dependence on foreign countries for our, our key resource for running the country. Sure changes the political discussion, doesn't it? It does. Because I can remember early on in the career when OPEC decided to do one thing or another, it really was a swing and it was a choke point. Absolutely. that punctuation seems to have slowed down. So for you, in thinking about with your experience in travel, what advice would you offer to either a new CEO or a senior business leader that's assuming that role for the first time in a foreign country? Find some experts to talk to. (laughs) We typically had, there's companies that specialize in briefings for fiscal regimes of international ventures. So so you look at the economics of of the countries itself and then find the local 
people that are going to be your ears and eyes on the ground, people that are going to be dedicated to your company and be willing to tell you the truth and advise you properly. So finding those resources is probably key to being successful, especially in an international arena for a new CEO. And I think, as always, a CEO's job is to engage his entire team the best he can. And in an international arena, you're going to use some local labor. So I know CEOs for larger companies don't have the luxury of communicating that frequently to everyone. But if there's an opportunity to do that, people really value that. Words directly from the top leader are like gold to some people. I mean, they they motivate people. And as you know, uh, motivation for people to work hard is not just money. They want to be part of a good team. They want to create something that's successful, valuable for others. And so it's that's the painted picture that I see when you ask that question. Well, it obviously worked for you. So that's a good thing. <laughs> for you in thinking about misconceptions, what do you think the biggest misconception was either about your role as a geologist or the international experience that you had? As a geologist, many business leaders on the engineering side or pure business leaders that don't necessarily have the subsurface understanding, they just think you can just punch a couple of buttons and spit out the interpreted thing and say, oh, here's a bunch more locations. People don't understand the cycle time of gathering data and interpreting data. So that's one thing as a geologist, I would say. Managing expectations of what people have the wrong misconception or the improper. And looking back over the past few years, what would or should you have said no to and why? I think when you say manage expectations, a key thing for a geologist is to describe the risk to the business decision makers and managing expectations and understanding okay, we had this discovery, but to expect that same 10 million barrel discovery to happen again time after time is unrealistic because here's the risks of doing that. So as geologists and subsurface people, our job is to portray the risk as accurately as we can, say when you need more data to reduce the risk, and manage expectations. So when you said that phrase, it's, it's been a key phrase for most of my career. You want to manage expectations for the business leaders of your respective company by portraying exactly the risks involved with the subsurface. Makes sense. Spend money in the right place. Try to get a return on investment. Right. For you, you obviously are very disciplined or you wouldn't have been successful traveling and writing a book. So what's that day-to-day self-talk or personal (laughs) habit that keeps you focused? I guess for me is enjoy what you do. and. It's not just about money. It's engaging with the people, creating something, being excited to get up in the morning and go figure out the variety of things you have to do. And people say, well, how were you able to write a book while you had such a demanding job that involves so much travel? Or as I evolved later in my career as a leader, I mean, there's things that keep you up at night when you're making decisions that affect people. But I found time to write a book because I'm basically a insomnia helps do that so (laughs) at night or on planes when everybody else has watched a movie and fall asleep i'm writing a little bit just find time the discipline to find time to write is difficult but i fit it in somewhere along the way in some of the book in reading about your schedule you'd have some periods of time where there's a delay and you kind of go well i went here and i went there and then there were times where you said i worked for like three days in a row creating the output getting the reports in And so for you early on in your career, and I don't know if it was through your career, 
to be able to have an established routine would have been a luxury at, at a minimum. That's a fact. You know, it was a, it's a cyclical business, as we talked about on a global scale and a price, a commodity scale, but it's kind of a feast or famine too. I mean, many businesses have high periods of activity as quarter reports or whatnot, but we have that in the oil and gas business too, and it may be a different driver. You have a bid deadline coming up for a, applying for a license in a country. You have a scheduled review for your business leaders to review everything you're doing and what are we going to do next and why. And so Because they have their deadlines and quarterly reports too, if they've got shareholders. Absolutely. That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> so for you, through all the times, you know, and you think about the stories, favorite scary story, favorite funny story, you have those? Indeed. Well, I'd have to say I talked about the turkey story, and I guess one funny thing is we're in Egypt for five years, and it's a third world, it's desert, all the buildings are brown, nothing seemed to work routinely, the rules were kind of ad hoc, and then we moved to Scotland where everything was green, it was first world, there was plenty of infrastructure and industry, and my son just said, well, it's the same, there's goats everywhere and guys wear dresses. Scotland, we enjoyed our time there as well. It was a beautiful yeah. place. It's the most green place I think I've ever been. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess... To, Except for the buildings. They're gray. <laughs> right. Gray stone was common, so they used it. For the folks that want to reach out to you on social media, how do they find you? I'm on LinkedIn, David Allard, author, retired geologist, retired as chief geologist just a few months ago. I have a author page davidallardauthor.com. With two L's. That's correct. A-L-L-A-R-D. And my website has links to Amazon if you want to buy the book or if you want to autograph copy directly from me, there's a link to do that. The website also has some of the pictures of places that we've talked about today and descriptions of Q&A, examples of interviews for me and things about the book. I'm on Amazon, of course. I have an Amazon author page, Facebook, Facebook page, author page, you know, the usual things that most authors do. So you're steeped in social media. I am. <laughs> For you, and as you've traveled and through the years, do you have a favorite quote or one that you would draw on? Right. Well, I invariably fall to Rome was not built in a day. We all get in a hurry and want to create things instantly, but realize you can't kill yourself working all night, all day, forever. I guess that's, that's a good one. If I was to run across some of your colleagues and ask them what you're best at and how do you utilize that strength on a day-to-day basis, what would you say you're best at? I'm personable and my communication skills are strong. I listen well. Sometimes Deborah might say I talk too much, but it's important to explain the leadership's view of what we're doing and why the team's view and in my team, I want them to be fully informed. I guess another Thinking back to another quote, I would think is Vince Lombardi in that perfection is not attainable, but if we chase perfection, we can catch excellence. And so I prided myself trying to just be a reliable worker and produce excellent product throughout my career. They like consistency. Consistency helps. (laughs) (laughs) I've harassed you now for almost an hour. Hard to imagine. In looking at the book, and so the book's been out a little while. And yet the oil field and world stage is dynamic. What could folks tie from current events into what you've got in the book? Well, 
I guess I look at my experiences in Russia, talking about the culture there. I spent a fair bit of time in China and Thailand, the Far East. I had a very enjoyable time understanding those cultures. And so in general, it's a glimpse of the world cultures of which we repeatedly hear about today. Russia's in the news almost every day. And there's the Far East and there's the West. We're the West. And, and Russia is just different. And you just can't really explain that until you go there. I mean, the people are very bright. They have a large country. In fact, the original, the Soviet Union that I grew up with has 11 time zones. I have no idea how they managed such a vast array of countryside. It's, it's just mind-boggling. But when I was in Moscow or in northern Russia, Kazakhstan, which is now no longer a part of Russia, but its own country, just the culture's different. So interesting. That's now, all I can say. To wind this up, is there a favorite place internationally that you would go back to and spend time? We always talked about going back to Guatemala. There's amazing volcanic cratons, there's jungle, there's phenomenal beaches, there's uh, ruins from the days of the Spanish antiquities now in Antigua and Guatemala City, 16th century buildings. So it has it all. Jungle, beaches, phenomenal architecture, a culture, really interesting. So that jumps out as one place. And we need to go back to Egypt. I miss my friends there. We're long overdue for a return to Egypt. would like to go back to the Far East as well. That, that's just a, an amazing culture to me, how people work and live there. I think about all the years of travel, and then you go from all the travel to not so much. And you go, withdrawal would be, I think, from the itchy foot. I got to believe you have an itchy foot <laughs> if you travel that much. Well, we've limited mostly to uh, domestic travel lately, but we talk about going back internationally when we get things sorted out with our Colorado-based business. And it was a challenge. All the international trips we made, maybe it's a, we're not as young as we used to be, but maybe that's it. I don't know. But <laughs> Say it isn't so. <laughs> <laughs> it happens to us all, doesn't it? If but, you keep uh, showing up. Yeah. <laughs> moving to Denver in the fall of 2015, that is a vibrant, beautiful place, but my gosh, has it become crowded. I've been coming to Colorado my whole life. I have family in the Fort Collins area, but it's incredible the growth that Denver's experienced. So finding a house to buy and figuring things out and fighting the traffic there is, it was a challenge. Yeah. I've been here in Colorado a very long time. And yeah, you, I was in Denver over the lunch hour today and the traffic is incredible, I guess, which is the same everywhere nowadays in the big cities, just part of the infrastructure issue. So that is, well, David, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking time to come share your story and guys out there and gals, uh, I would highly encourage you to pick the book up. I enjoyed it. The stories are great. And the descriptions of the people and the events and the countryside are riveting. And I think you would really enjoy it. Well, I enjoyed talking with you, Bob. It's a pleasure. Thanks, David. Talk soon. All right.